Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Irish Passport Half Pints. The extra content we make especially to thank our Patreon supporters. In this edition, we're going to look at what's happening in the European Union, which finds itself at what could prove to be a historic crossroads. We'll also check in on what's going on with that subject that once seemed to be all-consuming, but which in the last few months has been the last thing on so many people's minds. And we're, of course, talking about Brexit. Right. Uh, Brexit pretty much fell off lots of people's radars uh, as the world has tried to come to terms with the global pandemic. And like lots of political upsets pre-COVID, it does seem strangely kind of trivial in comparison to what's happening or what's happened since, Um, which is not something that many people might have expected to be thinking this time last year, I suppose. Right. But even though it's been overshadowed, of course, the whole issue hasn't gone away. Negotiations are still ongoing in these weeks that we're speaking. We're going to explain what they're all about and why they're hitting the headlines at the moment. Right, exactly. In this Half Pint, listeners, we are going to arm you with everything you need to know about where we are uh, with the European Union and Brexit and Ireland right now, uh, why the EU is at a historic moment of challenge and opportunity, and what you might expect to see uh, coming out in the coming months. So to do that, handily enough, we have Naomi O'Leary, Irish Times Europe correspondent, right here to set us straight. Uh, So Naomi, I have a smorgasbord of mostly stupid questions for you (laughs) about uh, what's going on right now. Um, I I fully put my hands up that since since February and March, I have willfully tuned out of of a lot of this. Um, So we need you, Naomi, to get us up to speed, me and the Irish Passport listeners. So are you ready? I am ready as ever, Tim. Okay, all right. So I'm going to zoom in on Brexit straight away. And I'll start with the obvious question, which is, Why are we still talking about this? Um, The last that many people will remember about Brexit was the pump and the fanfare at the end of January, when loads of newspapers across the UK were announcing that the country had officially left the EU, and loads of commentators uh, were saying, no, we haven't, you know, and it was all very confused. Uh, So, you know, has Brexit already happened or hasn't it? It has. The UK left the EU on January 31st. Why negotiations are still going on between Britain and the EU now is because they're trying to figure out the post-Brexit relationship between the UK and the EU. So with leaving the EU, the UK has left all of the trade agreements, all of the countries, like from the US to Canada to Japan, that it used to trade under. So it needs to reform all of its trade relationships with like the whole world, as well as its trade relationship with its most its biggest trading partner, which is the EU. So that's what they're trying to talk about. (laughs) And they have a really, really short time to do it because the UK was very adamant that they wanted to really cram this into as short a time as possible. While these negotiations are going on, they're in what's called the the transition period. And that lasts until December 31st. And that basically means until December 31st, the UK is just kind of not changing anything and it it continues with more or less the relationship that I had with the EU before, even though it's not a member of the EU anymore. It's just kind of frozen on ice. And then they have this time to decide the future relationship. 
um, which is a very, very short time to negotiate a big trade deal. Like, it's crazy. Like, the, the EU's trade deal, for example, with Canada took seven years to negotiate. And this one, they only ever had a year. And now that's been shortened further because like loads of the negotiators actually got sick with coronavirus. So the lead EU negotiator, Michel Barnier, he got coronavirus and his whole team had to be isolated. And the lead UK negotiator, David Davis, also had symptoms and had to um, isolate as well. And they're not able to meet in person anymore. So all of these very complicated uh, negotiations have to happen over Zoom or probably not Zoom, whatever software they're using, but it's video chat. Um, oh. And like when I say complicated, they have to decide like <laughs> everything from if you are, if you're qualified as a lawyer in London, should you be able to work in Paris without needing to do a new qualification? Everything from that to what a quota of cod should a Spanish ship be able to catch in UK waters to, you know, are we going to have different tariffs on different goods or is the UK going to agree not to, like, make electricity really cheap for its steel sector? You know, I mean, it's just, it covers, like, everything. It's huge. Like, (laughs) what they have to talk about is absolutely huge. And there's, you know, I've only named a few topics. There's also, like, you know, if, if, extradition stuff like stuff to do with police and security do we exchange information all this kind of stuff it's it's enormous and they're trying to do it over zoom okay all right so like you know from from any way you look at it this is a herculean task um and the uk had already insisted on quite an unfeasible period of time to get it all done and that period of time has been reduced even further Uh, but then to make matters worse um, the UK does not have a good track record on these deadlines uh, in the last few years. Um, so many of them have had to be extended, so many of them uh, were missed um, because the Tories just couldn't really square the circle between what had been promised to voters and what was actually feasible. So it seems not unthinkable that uh, the EU and the UK will not be able to agree on everything or on anything before December 31st. What happens in that case? What happens if they can't agree before the deadline? If they don't agree, then the UK will begin and the EU will will automatically have a trade relationship on what's called World Trade Organization terms. So that's like a default for nations that don't have trade agreements uh, specifically agreed between them. And what it basically means is really huge tariffs on loads of stuff, particularly stuff like agricultural goods like dairy and meat. That means it's really serious for Ireland because Ireland exports a massive amount of meat and dairy and food to the UK. And like that, the level of tariffs that would be required, tariffs, just another way of kind of saying a tax, means that it would be uncompetitive. You know, there would be UK consumers probably wouldn't buy it. It would be too be too expensive. So it'd be disastrous. And it's not just the level of tariffs. It's also it entails that there's just going to be a lot of paperwork for businesses to do in order to export to the UK or import from it. So it would be this massive shift covering like all products all of a sudden from one day to another. There would just be like a massive amount of paperwork and lots and lots of costs. So that kind of economic shock happening on top of the coronavirus pandemic depression. Well, it's not depression yet, but what's suspected to be like the most serious economic downturn in a century is just extremely unwelcome, I would say. So yeah, a lot of businesses are like, 
don't do this. Don't do this. Mm. Just, just, just please extend the transition period. Give a bit more time for the negotiators to figure this stuff out. Why would we do oh. this? Uh, okay. <laughs> so right. they're asking that. <laughs> like, I, I want to get on to the, to the more practical details of that uh, economic shock in a minute. Uh, yeah. But uh, two things I'd, I'd love to get clear. Um, yeah. f- first of all, at one point during the, kind of the Brexit saga over the last three years, there was a point where certain UK politicians were trying to spin this idea of a WTO Brexit as a good thing. And, you know, mm-hmm. most most commentators seem to see this as disingenuous. But what, I mean, even if that was just, you know, a, a streak of propaganda, are there any positives to a, a WTO agreement? Maybe because you wouldn't have to agree everything because all of the tariff levels are already set. So maybe you wouldn't have to go through all the details. But it would be extremely, extremely disruptive. I mean, just to be clear, the UK would suffer the most because it would suddenly have massive barriers to its biggest trading partner, which is the EU. No other EU country would be affected so severely as the UK itself. Even Ireland, even though Ireland, you know, does sell an awful lot to the UK, it wouldn't be as badly affected as the UK itself because, you know, we sell much more to the rest of the EU and more as well to like the United States. So, you know, there's there's other places which wouldn't be affected by this shift in terms of the trade. Okay, all right. Um, and the second thing I wanted to get clear is, um, can the UK turn around at any point between now and December 31st and say, hi, we'd like more time, please? Yes, they have until July to ask for that. So Ooh. this is under the, like their exit agreement, they said, you know, this next part we demand that it's got to be done within the year but there was this clause put in where it's like but you know they can ask for an extension as long as they do so latest june and the reason for that is because the eu didn't want them to bring it right up to the last minute again and then be like oh we'll extend it they want to like get it over and done with like earlier on in the year so you know that's the last point at which they can ask for an extension Mm. um but the uk keeps saying like there's no way we're going to do that like they they say it more and more adamantly, actually. Um, and there's been this talk, well, why, can the EU ask for one? Like the EU is openly saying, like, why don't you ask for one? Like they're just like, just, just extend it, you know? Like why? It's, why not and give more time for this? Does, like, any, does anyone know or is it just speculation or is there any good theories about why the UK is doing this, putting itself in such a tight space? It's probably because the people who were in favour of the hardest possible Brexit win if everything's done by December, because the kind of relationship that they're going to have with the EU is is going to be one which is very distant. It's not a soft Brexit by any means. It's a very hard one. Um, it's got lots of disruption like built in. And also the UK is probably going to diverge quite a lot, probably. Um, okay. And so they're, you know, they they want to grab that prize, which they want. You know, they're very, very ideologically committed to that. And they want to grab it before it might slip away or people might think again or the tide might turn. You know, they're trying to take their opportunity to do it. OK. All right. So, OK, so let's look a little bit at, at the details of what kind of economic shock might be brought on by this. Um, mm-hmm. Like like you said, Naomi, you know, this is coming at just to coincide with possibly the biggest uh, recession that we've seen in more than one generation. Um, so this is going to be something else entirely for everyone involved than the normal yeah. kind of disasters of a, of a normal 
normal kind of economic uh, disaster or shock. Um, so I imagine that both sides will be hoping to overcome these obstacles uh, between them. But wh- what are the obstacles that they're facing? Yeah. So there's a, um, there's a thought about the economic shock thing that possibly the British government isn't as worried about what's called like a, like a no trade deal uh, outcome. They're not as worried about it because they think the overall economic picture is going to be so terrible anyway that it'll just sort of get lost in that and they won't get blamed for it. You know, it's the pandemic rather than Brexit or whatever. So there's one school of thought that that could be the case. Um, on, On the EU side as well, it's worth pointing out that the kind of deal that the UK is trying to get at this point with the EU is so divergent from it's such a distant relationship from the EU already that the economic disruption that it will cause in any case will be great. Like it's the distance between the current deal that the UK is looking for and the no deal outcome is actually a lot smaller than say if the UK was looking for some soft Brexit. So in a way there could be some in the EU where like well it's going to be very terrible anyway but we're not talking about such a much more terrible outcome than we were before. Um, But you wanted to know about the specific things which are holding it up. Mm. Um, So there's a good few. There's a good few. Um, But I think one for example is fish. They're at loggerheads over fish. The UK want to basically get control back over all their waters, their fishing waters, and they don't want to participate with the EU with any kind of like reciprocal arrangements like, oh, you know, we can fish in, fish in Spanish waters, the Spanish boats can come to UK waters. They don't want any of that. They don't want any of this quota system that the EU has, which is a way to make sure that the fish stocks aren't overfished. So the EU is like, well, if that's the case, you know, we won't let you sell your fish to our markets because, you know, you won't let our boats like fish in your waters so what you know why should we why should we just grant your fishermen all the fish again um so it's just you know there there's a standoff there and the uk are like but we're a sovereign nation and this is the whole point and we're grabbing our waters it gets quite complicated when you look at specific circumstances like for example a lot of the waters around um like say uh, northern ireland Scotland places they might actually be contested or you know there's there's agreements that go back centuries you know where the people have fished in each other's waters and there's whole sort of like very old whole fishing communities built up around that so it gets quite messy um it's not as clear cut as you might think um so that's one but I don't even think that that one like that one's kind of important symbolically but I don't even think it's the main I don't think it's like that significant fishing is actually not such a huge industry uh, comparatively the main thing is what's called level playing field which we've mentioned it before um but just to put it really simply the EU doesn't want to allow british companies to have an unfair advantage over companies in the EU uh, so if British companies are allowed to do all sorts of shit that French companies or German com- companies are banned from doing, so for example, cutting labour standards, polluting loads, you know, cutting environmental standards, getting like state aid from the government, getting tax deals, that kind of thing, all this sort of stuff that would just give them an unfair advantage, then, you know, the EU isn't just going to let them for free just sell their products into the EU. They'll put up a barrier. So they can only get that like easy access into the single market if they promise not to do all of these things and not just promise but actually like commit to it like in law so we're going to actually have the same standards on this kind of stuff more or less Um, and there's some sort of guarantee of that 
And otherwise, you know, you can't just sell into the single market because you'll have an unfair advantage over our companies. Okay, all right. And that actually kind of brings us uh, neatly back around to this one most uh, enormous issue that has dominated um, uh, this issue since we began the podcast, and that is, of course, the Irish border. Um, So where are we now with the Irish border? There seems to be a lot of confusion about whether this issue has been resolved or not. Well, in the withdrawal agreement, so in the agreement under which the UK left the EU, they agreed something called the Northern Ireland Protocol. And it means like whatever happens, even if there's a no deal, there isn't going to be a border across the island of Ireland. That's already written into UK law. However, this does depend on UK actually implementing its own law. So it's said like the the people in the UK government have said really alarming things like, oh, no, no, there's not going to be a border in the Irish Sea. That's not, you know, even though that they actually signed up to that and actually put it into law, they've been saying there won't. So this kind of freaked everybody out. And they were like, what? So what's going on now is there's a, a joint committee made up of people from the EU and people from the UK that are watching this implementation, studying the implementation by the UK side to check that it's being done. And what implementation means is it means like literally, you know, getting ready the border infrastructure from goods that are going to be going from Britain into Northern Ireland to make sure that they're actually going to, you know, check them. Um, And there's disagreements about this. I mean, clearly, as you imagine, you know, Britain doesn't want to have lots and lots of checks (laughs) and like between Britain and Northern Ireland. And the EU is like, yes, you must do all those checks because we don't want like your shitty stuff from United States or wherever, like just getting flooding into our single market without being taxed, you know, without paying the right duties. Mm. You know, we can't just have a hole in the single market like that. But this it's a kind of strange situation where it's actually the British that have to implement this. Um, so, yeah, that's that's where everything is at with the, the Northern Ireland Protocol right now. Like what I've noticed over the last few weeks of the negotiations is the UK have been trying to like turn things on their heads so you know how the eu would always be like like it was almost like a ritual after a round of negotiations the chief eu negotiator michel barnier would come out very flustered and sort of outraged looking and he'd like flap around some papers and he'd be like the uk haven't done you know they haven't done their homework they haven't said they haven't produced any papers they don't say what they want you know the time is running out warning warning like he used to say that And what happened after the last round is like, actually, like as Michel Barnier was on his way to the podium, the UK released this statement being like the UK, the the EU haven't done their homework, you know, they haven't (laughs) said what they want. And it was like really echoing like the EU's language. So it was like a way of getting ahead of it. And they're doing the the exact same thing on the Northern Ireland Protocol. So exactly in the way that the EU and Ireland, like the Dublin government used to warn about the Good Friday Agreement, now the UK are like darkly warning about the Good Friday Agreement. So they're like, well, you know, if things are going to be imposed and they don't have cross-community consent, it has grave repercussions repercussions for the Good Friday Agreement. So it's really like actually taking the language that was previously used against them and using it themselves. So they're doing that a lot. Like they're doing that a lot. And it's quite disingenuous. It's like they're trying to stir something up on purpose. That's basically, well, that's how it comes across to me anyway. Right. Well, yeah, it is after four years to finally kind of <laughs> point out that little problem. <laughs> like, well, yeah, that's, that is something. Um, yeah. uh, 
Just before we uh, uh, move on from this topic, um, could you maybe just give us a kind of broad overview of where the politics or the political representatives of Northern Ireland stand in relation to the current situation around the border? Like um, the DUP Mm. seemed pretty um, uh, bummed out about the whole thing uh, for a while. But again, it was it was just very kind of um, vague sometimes about what exactly they could be complaining about. So Mm. so where are we in Northern Ireland politics uh, vis-a-vis this? Um. Like the DUP were, what do you call it, sold a pup by the Mm. London government, for sure. Like Boris Johnson actually in person visited Northern Ireland and was like, I promise there's not going to be a border. And he was like, any businesses expecting to do paperwork uh, can throw that paperwork in the bin. But now it turns out there is going to be paperwork. Okay, it's going to be online. It's going to be digital. So they can say, well, you know, technically it's not paperwork. Oh, you know, stop. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, now they have admitted it took them quite a long time. But now they're like, yeah, there's going to be a border in the Irish Sea. Sorry, guys. You know, but they don't say the sorry part, but they they admit it now. And so I don't know where that leaves the DUP because the DUP got all these reassurances from London and that just weren't true. Um, right. Obviously, you know, for people who were like everyone was very worried about a border on the island. And that's avoided. So, you know, that's kind of good. Um, Mm. However, it's not great for Northern Irish businesses um, because they are, you know, they need both trade into Britain and trade into the EU. They really need both. And as we know, like this is one of the poorest regions of the poorest region of the UK and one of the most most economically deprived areas in the EU and well, not in the EU anymore in Europe. Um, and certainly in the UK. Um, so they don't need any of this disruption. And the UK government is saying, you know, oh, no, no, like things will be all very seamless for for Northern Irish businesses who are selling into Britain. Uh, you won't need to do anything. But there's lots of issues. So like there are going to be uh, checks on goods going into Northern Ireland. And that always necessarily means extra cost, which isn't good for the consumers of Northern Ireland. Also, There's a lot of unanswered questions. I wrote a piece about this in the Irish Times recently. So just for an example, although the businesses of Northern Ireland aren't supposed to have any checks on their goods, the businesses of Ireland as in the Republic are. So how do you tell what's a a good from the Republic and what's a good from Northern Ireland? Mm. It's very difficult. Like apart from anything else, there's like hybrid products like Bailey's. The drink is a hybrid product. But also like just how do you individualize like where it's coming from and which is which so in order to have that you have to have some sort of process to tell which one is which and that would need to be done by both kinds of companies if you know what I mean so there's a lot of holes and there's a lot of detail and I was asking British officials to answer some of these questions and they're like basically we don't know we have to just figure that out you have to figure out the details Oh, wow. Okay, so, uh, Naomi, we're 15 minutes into a com- <laughs> the first conversation I've had about Brexit in two months, and I already feel the energy all sucked out of my soul. Oh, no, um, So <laughs> What about our poor listeners? What about our poor listeners? Um, uh, uh, so you can imagine how the EU has been feeling. Uh, you know, it was already so <laughs> sick of all this um, before the pandemic, and now it's got so much more um, on its plate. So, um, you know, aside from Brexit, uh, what has been going on with the EU in, in the last little while? In my view, what's going on in the European Union itself is much, much more interesting than what's going on with Brexit. Um, so the EU is 
at possibly a kind of historic turning point, very high stakes. So there's very big challenges to it, mm. but there's also opportunities. And as everyone knows, as everyone probably knows, the EU does take its biggest steps in terms of reforms um, in moments of crisis. Uh, so what's been happening is just to rewind a little bit, you know, the EU is this kind of partial union where there's powers split. The The national governments keep most powers, but they give some to joint institutions for like joint solutions that we sort of mm-hmm. pool together. Um, but there's like the division between those two things can be quite awkward. That was kind of revealed in the pandemic because people look to the EU like, oh my God, there's a pandemic and you're this like, you know, coordinating institution between all of our countries. Do something. And the EU is kind of like, yeah, but you didn't give us any power to decide anything about health. Like healthcare is an entirely national measure. And so are borders. So it's not like we can advise anybody to like do checks on their borders. That's just, that would be... That's something that nas- only national governments could do. So there was this sort of expectation of action that wasn't fulfilled because of the limitations on EU power. So that was the first thing. Since then, the EU has been like really ramping up, trying to like get on top of its response. And it, 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 it does, has done whatever it can within the limitations of its powers. So it stopped, it, it relaxed all the rules about spending by national governments. So for years, national governments haven't been able to run um, deficits over a certain level without, you know, incurring the wrath of the EU. Uh, just, you know, to try basically to try and uh, have more, e- le- uh, less, fewer economic imbalances within the EU. Um, mm. And they were just like, oh, yeah, well, we're just going to drop them for the pandemic because everybody has more costs because it's such an economic disaster. So just like spend, 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 basically. Um, it also put loads of money towards uh, stuff like looking for a vaccine so it raised the, it raised tons of money also in a sort of international pledging event to try and look for a vaccine and then the the big next thing that it's doing is it's trying to come up with a big recovery fund plan for the EU because like we say the the economic damage is, is expected to be the worst in a century and this is of special concern to the EU because of the euro so mm. the euro is a strange currency. It's a currency that exists without a fiscal union. Usually currencies have a, like an, a, a power at the centre of them that can raise taxation um, and spread spending around through its whole, like the whole area of the of the union to keep to like the economic imbalances less. But the EU doesn't really have that. So what happens in times of crisis is the weakest economically weakest members of the EU suddenly see capital flight. Investors don't want to hold their debt anymore and they run away to the um, richer, more uh, stronger economies of the EU. So what effectively happens is that in this case, Italy, which is like the one that the markets are picking on at the moment, the investors fly out of Italy and they go to like Germany and the Netherlands. So Germany and the Netherlands have like are able to borrow on international markets at very, very, very low rates, whereas Italy's borrowing rate gets, gets higher and higher. And mm. what that what can happen is that you end up in a debt spiral because Italy has already like tons of debt. And if it has to keep borrowing more and at ever higher interest rates, that gets to a point where it will go bankrupt, <laughs> will go bust. Mm. Right. And that could take down the whole 
eurozone you know if italy goes under like it's its third largest economy um so what's been happening is the european central bank has been pumping money into the economy essentially uh buying bonds to try and keep the interest rates low essentially to try and keep italy's interest rates low but there's only so much it can do so there's this big chat now about the recovery fund and in the recovery fund there is this possibility that there could be like a historic step forward where the EU could do go towards um go towards creating something closer to that fiscal union that was missing in the creation of the euro okay all right so so really these debates are in large part about the future of the EU itself and yeah. like uh, where does Ireland fit into those debates so um, the whole row is essentially split between two camps in Europe. There's the so-called frugal camps, and they want a cheaper EU. Uh, the UK probably would have been among them before it left. And they are um, like the Netherlands and Austria and Finland and Denmark. I think those are the four. Um, the Netherlands was the most prominent at first. And they're like, no, we're not. Essentially, they see any kind of shared debt as um, almost subsidizing the weaker economies of the South, just in terms of national politics. Um, in the Netherlands, it's really unpopular to like spend anything more on the EU. You know, they're, they're like that way. And also anything like to do with bailouts or common borrowing by the EU is seen as like, Dutch taxpayers' money going towards the lazy Greeks who retire at 50. Or, you know, this is, that's kind of the image that they have. So there's this, like, really deep, like, pu public domestic opposition. Um, mm. And that's sort of driving the government's action in that they don't want any more spending by the EU and they don't want any more fiscal integration because they basically fear ending up on the hook for the debts of the weaker southern economies. Mm. So that's the frugal camp. And then there's the what are called sometimes the pro-solidarity camp. It's really been led by Italy this time. Um, Italy with Spain, Portugal. And they are like, we want more EU. This is what the EU is for. You know, now is your time. We must stand together. Our common prosperity relies on the prosperity of all. There's no such thing as a rich Netherlands with a, you know, defaulting Italy. Mm. Um, because we're, you know, we share this economic risk together. And we have integrated markets. And so they want common EU borrowing, which would like like we fix that sort of imbalance in the Eurozone that I was talking about. Um, and we just want to pump money into the areas of Europe that need it most, particularly those hardest hit by the pandemic, like Italy and Spain. Um, so they've been calling for massive econ uh, recovery fund. And what's happened is really interesting with Ireland. Ireland was kind of on the frugal side a little bit. Like they weren't, they were not on this particular issue, but they were like really best buds with the Netherlands in the wake of Brexit because they agree with the Netherlands on a bunch of stuff like to do with taxation and things like that. Um, and they're kind of, you know, pro-globalization and pro-free trade and that kind of thing. Uh, pro-business they don't want like too much social spending all that kind of stuff so they were they were quite tight with the Netherlands and a whole group called the Hansa League uh, mm. but this issue about the recovery fund actually broke the Hansa League and Ireland like went off and joined Italy and Spain and has gone off with this group now and they're like yeah no we need to save 
we need to save the EU and we need to commit to this like uh, pooling of risk together. Um, wow. And uh, yeah, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. And the big thing that's happened just like in the last week is that um, this was kind of at a stalemate, this whole row. And then um, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, and the German chancellor, Angela Merkel, came out together. So we're talking about like the two big powers of the EU. They came out together in favour of the Solidarity Group. And they're like, yes, common borrowing. We need half a trillion of it. And it's not going to be loans, it's grants, which is another like um, like extra generous thing for them to do. Um, so that really cornered the frugals like the Netherlands because they used to rely really on Germany to kind of... Germany used to be pretty frugal, but it seems like it's not anymore. So the frugals are looking a little bit isolated. But what we'll have to see is whether whether they can block it. Um, so that's the whole economic debate in the EU. And it's about it's really about whether the EU is going to integrate more um, in the future. Okay. And it's really important at the moment because the EU is kind of facing these big challenges. There's There's more of them which we can talk about. Yeah, sure. I mean, like, aside from economics, are there other yeah. any other challenges that, that are raising their heads right now? Yes, yes, there are. So um, <laughs> the huge one is a rule of law at the moment. So you probably know, like, in Hungary and Poland, the governments are going down a path of trying to no longer have independent judiciaries. I don't know if you know this. No, yeah, but uh, explain what this is. In Hungary, they have a authoritarian um, guy called Viktor Orban, uh, who's in charge. And, um, you know, he's like, I guess, kind of alt-right. And he um, he's partakes in a fair bit of anti-Semitic scapegoating. And he's always, yeah, he, he he's always flouting democratic norms. And it just seems to get worse and worse. He harasses civil society organizations like, you know, I don't know, gay rights groups or whatever. Similar story in Poland. They're kind of going down a similar path. They have like a very right wing um, crowd in power. And they're also trying to rig judiciaries to. And, and that's a big problem for the EU. So the the European Court of Justice has been issuing these, like telling them off, basically being like, no. Mm. Um, and this rule of law thing is like a massive deal um, because the EU is supposed to be about rule of law. It's supposed to be like a collection of democracies and to sort of promote those values internationally. So if it doesn't really have them inside itself, <laughs> that's totally undermined and undermines the whole project. And what mm. Viktor Orban did in response to the pandemic is he got the parliament to grant him indefinite power of government by decree so like actual like direct authoritarian powers indefinitely so he says that it's oh it's a pandemic response measure you know we all have different normalities at the moment you know in france you have people checking to see if you're really going to the supermarket or whatever this is just you know that don't you know don't judge us don't judge us like don't don't uh, judge us with different standards than you judge yourselves or whatever um but you know it's seen outside hungary particularly like um, including in Ireland as just a power grab and just an, an opportunity for him to to take more power and kind of erode democracy more. Uh, so that was already this big issue. And it was like, well, what, you know, what is the EU going to do about this? How do we deal with these members? They also block all sorts of things, by the way. So lots of times, um, for example, on this, here's a good example. 
Israel, the new Israeli government, has been saying that it wants to annex parts of the West Bank. Um, so the occupied West Bank that's occupied the, by the Israeli military, but the Palestinians want to like form part of their state. They've um, The new government of um, Prime Minister Netanyahu has been saying they want to annex bits of the West Bank and just take them, their bits with Jewish settlements in them, just take them under Israeli control. Um, and the EU was of one voice in terms of condemning that and it was blocked by Hungary. So Hungary, you know, stops the EU from like coming to consensus in all sorts of areas. Mm. Anyway, what's happened now is that the German Constitutional Court has said that it can overrule the European Court of Justice, which is supposed to be the highest court in the EU. And that's really important because it means that um, Poland and Hungary can also say that if they want. They can be like, oh, we can just ignore the ECJ judgments because we uh, reckon they're just overstepping the line. Um, So, yeah, the German Constitutional Court, funnily enough, did this weighing in on the whole um, common debt integration debate, by the way, um, on the frugal side. Uh, But, yeah, they made this rule which sort of undermined the very principle of EU uh, observing the same law throughout the whole of the bloc. Um, And it could create chaos because you could have a law that's legal in um, Bulgaria, but it's not observed in Spain or it's, you know, it's uh, ignored in Ireland and it's legal in Denmark or whatever. (laughs) Wow. Okay, so really, really big stuff. So this is essentially an existential um, question uh, about the EU. Um, And uh, we could go on for it forever, but we're we're running out of time. So I wanted to come around just to one last question about that other uh, major existential threat that looms over us all the time at the moment, um, which is easy to forget when we're faced with such dramatic uh, political and economic situations. Um, But that is, of course, the march, the the continued march of climate change. You know, we've had two months of kind of slowed down economy and we see birds in the sky and everything, Um, you know, but that's not going to go on forever. And it only really reminds us of how bad things were uh, up until that point. Uh, So I I remember, um, I seem to remember the EU committing to carbon neutrality by 2050. So what's happening with that? Is is there any changes or is it still on the line or... Interesting, interesting. So the Commission, the European Commission, of course, being the executive body and group of like technocrats who come up with policies for the EU and propose them, um, don't pass on themselves, by the way. It's national leaders that have to adopt them as well as the European Parliament. Sometimes people act like the Commission is some sort of like dictatorial sort of entity that can just impose stuff all the time. No, it proposes stuff. Um, anyway, so they're going to propose this recovery plan, which we've been talking about the, you know, half a trillion of borrowing that we were talking about that Merkel and Macron were in favour of. And what the Commission proposes is that the way that we should give out this money, the way we should use this money to stimulate economic recovery is to use it to turn the whole EU into a new carbon neutral society. So spend it on stuff like having um, zero emission trains or, you know, transforming the way that farming is done so that farmers are um, harvesting wind energy, for example, or being paid to have forests and being paid to have peat boglands and to look after them. Um, And they store carbon sinks and to change, you know, to increase organic farming, um, all kinds of things, and also to overhaul the whole energy system so that we're using clean and renewable energy instead of burning fossil fuels. And that would include all sorts of things like increasing the electric car network and having charging points everywhere 
Um, so that's the idea. They haven't proposed it at the time of recording. They're expected to propose it next week. And there's going to be huge fights about this. Oh, wait till you see. And wait till you see Ireland, by the way. Ireland is so super, super sensitive about anything to do with farming and agriculture. Um, like farmers in Ireland are very big political lobby and the the government the Irish government like one of its main priorities in all kinds of negotiations with the EU is just like don't touch farming don't change anything about it keep giving us lots of money for our farmers like farmers get huge subsidies from the EU don't change that like keep that going don't scare them with talk of this climate stuff you know so you can expect Ireland to be perhaps among the skeptics towards this plan Ireland is not very good on climate change and cutting emissions so let's say for our listeners out there who, you know, uh, are going to be looking for something to comment about this on their next Zoom conversation or their next uh, uh, Skype catch up with their friends. What are the big takeaways you would say from this moment of time? What are the, the big picture issues um, uh, facing the EU right now? I think something that's really interesting to me is how crisis like always causes these like moments of truth for the EU. I think before um, Merkel and Macron came out with their plan, it was sort of, there was a sort of sinking feeling in my stomach where I was like, oh my God, no one's going to be able to agree. Like this is, this is going really badly because all sorts of things that are fundamental to the EU had just fallen apart. Like even free movement, like the borders suddenly went up previously unthinkable. Like, there's there's border checks between Belgium and the Netherlands. It's nuts. <laughs> like that's a really complicated border. Like never mind the Irish border. That that's one. That's a similar one. Like it's, people are totally integrated in terms of their lives there. There's even a shop like which has because of the different coronavirus rules has like customers are able to buy shirts in the Belgian in the Netherlands part of the shop, but they're not across like the other side of the room it's because right. it's in Belgium it's nuts anyway so they have, like they this, have islands don't they they have little they do they islands do they have the Netherlands little, in Belgium <laughs> that's right so yeah it's a crazy border um and we had this total collapse over a long weekend of free movement in Europe and all these borders went up and it was sort of just like oh my god the whole thing is just like unraveling at amazing speed and then with all of these rows between Hungary and Poland and the rule of law and the you know the frugals like blocking everything no one's able to agree on anything we just have different so such different views and everything is crazy um but it looks like the determination of preserving um the wealth, really, the wealth of the EU, which depends on the single market and the euro, like that's why Germany is rich. Like mm. you know, I think I think Chancellor Merkel knows that, so she's moved. Um, and now there's a real potential that there could, rather than being the moment of total collapse of the EU or like or like the beginning of a slow unraveling, this could be you know another step towards greater integration. Um, and that's really interesting. It's also really interesting that I think, particularly in Ireland, the view of what Euroscepticism is has been massively influenced by the Brexit debate. Like our idea of Euroskeptics is like UKIP and like Brexiteers. Mm. But there's all sorts of Euroscepticism throughout the EU and they're all they all don't like the EU for like totally different reasons so at the moment there's like a lot of people in Italy are pretty unhappy with the EU because they felt really abandoned during the coronavirus uh, when it was really bad in Italy they felt like you know the EU didn't come to their aid or the other member states didn't come to their aid and they felt abandoned 
Um, and that Euroscepticism or like unhappiness with the EU comes out of a sense of disappointment because they expected much more. Like they're disappointed Europhiles and they want more EU. They want more integration. Um, they want fiscal integration. That's 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 what they want. And then in the in places like the Netherlands, it's totally different. They want less EU. It's it's an interesting uh, I, somebody. Um, referenced this on Twitter uh, recently and put it well that the two criticisms of the EU are that it's doing too much or that it's not doing enough and that it can't ever win because of those based <laughs> that the framework of those criticisms. It's really yeah. interesting and like um, also like just pay attention to national governments. I was saying earlier that like there's this idea of the commission like this you know body that just like decides all of this stuff. The commission is pretty weak. Like the permission is pretty weak. It can't really do much. It can propose stuff. And then the national governments, the national leaders have to accept it and they have to, and then the European Parliament has to accept it. Really, the the power brokers, the ones with the power, are the the leaders of governments, the national leaders. So it's really up to them. It's up to them what they want the EU to be. And they can break the EU. They can decide we are going to tear this apart. I mean, they built it. The member states of the EU built the EU and they can take it apart. And it's really up to them. And I think we need to be be very clear about who we attribute responsibility to, because in a lot of cases, national leaders abuse the EU uh, for political, domestic political reasons. So everything bad, you know, that happens is because of that dastardly EU and everything good that happens, they take credit for it. Um, Even though, you know, of course, the EU does good things like (laughs) or like proposals like this happens all the time that like the something will be agreed at the EU level and then it will be rolled out and then the leaders like the national leaders won't even say that it's an EU thing that happens all the time Mm. um so yeah just be just be very like pay attention to how the EU is being played in national politics and one thing that like I notice is like in places like the Netherlands the national leaders have just failed to explain really like what the EU even is and that Dutch wealth relies on the single market. Like there's, they think that, they really think that like Dutch taxpayers' money is just being taken by Greece all the time, which isn't even true. Greece got bailout loans, which I had to pay back. Like Ireland, you had to pay them back at interest. You know, it's got nothing to do with Dutch taxpayers' money. That's, that's crazy. Anyway, um, so yeah, that's, I think that it's a very interesting time and We'll see, but the stakes are really high. And what we can see in places like um, Hungary, Hungary, Poland, um, but actually even the UK is a kind of collapse of democratic norms or a slow erosion of democratic norms that's extremely concerning. And I think we need to be alert to that. Okay, well, I think um, that's all we have time for. But Naomi, I want to thank you for like an absolutely excellent rundown um, of what's going on. <laughs> and I'm actually I'm blown away. I'm so glad uh, we had this conversation because this is so important. Um, and you've explained it very clearly. So I hope our, our listeners um, agree and got something out of that one. So if you guys uh, want to hear more extra content like this and like lots of other things, uh, you can head out and uh, become a subscriber to us on Patreon over at www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport, uh, where you can gain access to our whole archive of Half Pint extra content. Apropos that as well, I'm <laughs> going to post a new one soon where ah. I interviewed a Dutch economist called Dirk Bezemer. And I was just like, Dirk Bezemer, can you please explain why this like Dutch people believe something really different about what's good for the economy than like Italian people? 
how can there be these very, very, very different beliefs about economic matters? And he kind of explained like why. So I'm going to post that. And it's a little bit about the rise that are going on in the EU and also just about like why the fundamental of economics like are so contested and unclear. So keep an eye out for that one. If you're interested in this, you'll absolutely love that. So do tune in. <laughs> so yeah, thank you so much for listening. And yeah, do give us a nice comment, a nice rating on whatever podcast app you have, uh, which really helps us to get out the word to new listeners. And so yeah, do share this episode with your friends if you liked it. So that's all from us for today. Stay well, everybody. And salon. Salon, everyone.